This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Well, I think maybe the idea behind failure, that book of poems, was to forgive. And I think I I reached it. I mean, I I understand, given his own circumstance, uh, poverty and struggle, endless struggle, and the fact that he was clearly dyslexic. I grew up dyslexic without knowing it and was always put in what they was called the dummy table in school, the slow kids. Grew up thinking I was stupid and it wasn't until my son was diagnosed with dyslexia in the second grade and I was 58 at the time, I understood that I was dyslexic and that explained all of that. And since I never saw my father read even a newspaper, I'm sure he was dyslexic also, which would explain a lot of his behavior. So I understand it. He, he grew up in a big hole. He was very young when he came over and he didn't speak English and he's worked hard and he got by, I guess you could just say the best way he could and uh, stayed as honest as he was able to. He worked 16 hour days. He always worked. He always strove. He left no energy over to be a husband or be a father and that usually doesn't sit well with a son. Why do some fathers disappoint their sons? And is failure an inevitable part of all human relationships. Hello, I'm Susan Cahill, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. On this week's show, American poet, activist and writer Philip Schultz discusses failure, his Pulitzer Prize-winning book of poetry, and the immigrant experience in America. And we all remember when Nelson Mandela got released from prison, which saw the end to apartheid. But how did the ultimate symbol of colonial exploitation survive? for so long. Historian and writer Sol Dubow explores the life and legacy of Steve Biko and the Black Consciousness Movement. This is a show about dreams and memories, segregation and division, leadership and moving on. But first, giving voice to failure. Philip Schultz is one of America's most cherished poets. He's smart, compassionate, direct and very warm. Philip is a founder and director of the Writer Studios in New York, where he encourages up-and-coming writers to face the subjects that they need to confront. Philip grew up in Rochester, the son of Lithuanian immigrants, and this experience alone has shaped his writing style, his imagination and thinking. Philip's work delves into personal history, family and the Jewish experience. And I have to say, it's unbelievably honest. Philip writes what most people height. But what makes Philip's writing even more memorable, and I think marks him out from his other worthy contemporaries, is his terrific sense of humour. His writing and approach to life is wonderfully playful. Philip is the author of five collections of poetry, including the National Book Award nominee, Like Wings, The God of Loneliness, The Holy Worm of Praise, Living in the Past, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning book of poetry, Failure, which is possibly one of the most humble and honest pieces of writing I have ever read. Philip's latest offering is The Wherewithal, 
a novel in verse. Well, early in the summer, I got the chance to meet with Philip at the Dublin Writers Festival. I asked Philip about his family background and his ideas for his latest book, The Wherewithal. Let's take a listen. It's brand new. I've been working at it. I could say off and on for a good part of my writing life since my 20s when I uh, got a job in a basement of a welfare building in San Francisco in the 60s and I always knew it would be great material for a book and the fiction I tried to write about it never panned out. But in 2002, when I read about a pogrom that happened in German-occupied Poland, where half the town, the non-Jewish half, murdered the Jewish half by putting them in a barn and setting it on fire and took their property, I realized that I understood what the real story was. The character hiding out from the American draft, from the Vietnam draft, in the basement was the son of the real woman who saved the lives of the seven Jewish survivors of that pogrom. And um, so starting some 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, I was writing pretty much exclusively on this book, and it took a long time to, among other things. Can you talk to me about the isolation and the loneliness that your key character feels and how he navigates his life and the memories that he has and the challenges that he faces? Well, that's an excellent question. <laughs> it really is, because that really perfectly sums him up. He, he's hiding. He's changed one letter in his name in order so that the draft won't find him. And he's translating his mother's diaries. She's dying slowly of Alzheimer's, and he feels that before she's gone, he needs to translate these diaries. So he's living in 1941. It's 1968 San Francisco, but he's going back and forth. And he's living above ground. It's The 60s is taking place. It's very exciting. And there's elements of the 60s, his previous jobs aboard, filling vending machines on an aircraft carrier just back from Vietnam, teaching uh, soldiers who are coming off of medication in his classroom how to read, uh, spelling one and two. There's all these, the 60s, and then there's all this... World War II and the Holocaust. And in the streets above, the Zodiac Killer is functioning and scaring everyone. And one of his previous jobs, right before, he was actually so penurious that he was on welfare. And he was standing in line waiting for food stamps when he found out about a job to work in the building. So he went from being on welfare to working there. And the Zodiac Killer is threatening everyone. Because of his draft status, he couldn't get a regular job. It was true. No one. I I went through this. No no one would hire you, knowing you could be gone the next day, either to Canada or to Vietnam. And suddenly, he gets hired to drive a cab. And because he discovers quickly he's the only cab on the streets of the Bay Area, San Francisco, because all the other cabbies read the papers and look at the television and understand that the Zodiac said he was going to kill a cabbie next. And he's driving on the night that the Zodiac said he was going to kill a cabbie next. He would he would announce who he's going to kill next. A policeman, a teacher, a fireman. And um, so there's humor in the book. There, there's humor. But it's dark and it's uh, it's an examination of the kind of evil that would go on in the mind of a Zodiac killer. And you know, there's a comparison there, obviously. If you gave the Zodiac killer the world's most powerful army, what would you have? You would have World War II. And he's transcribing the diaries of his mum who witnessed terrible atrocities during World War Two, and also was very heroic in her own life. You're first generation immigrant to America and families coming from war situations. How much of this is a part of your own story and how much of it is fiction? I actually wrote a, an earlier sequence of poems about growing up in the street I did in Rochester, New York. 
and the street was inundated with a wave of, of displaced persons from the camps. And they were highly resented by the earlier waves of immigrants because they brought the great heaviness with them. Their shadows were very leaden. Uh, I knew Yiddish from my grandmother, so I would translate some of their letters. And I would therefore sit on the porch and hear them talk. And I would hear their stories of the Holocaust. So that was part of my... I, I was too young to understand it. And one man who, who traded me for my letters, my translations, piano lessons, was a well-known pianist in Berlin before the war. And I found out after he died that all the letters to his family, his children, his wife... I thought we're living somewhere in England. They were all dead. I was writing letters for him to the dead. And this is how he managed in the, for a few years to survive, making them alive. He never told me, of course. Someone else explained it to me afterwards. It was, I was maybe 12 years, 12, 13 years old. It was quite traumatic for me. And it's amazing human survival because obviously he was recreating a world that he wished and so longed for. That was lost. And... Um, Yes, and he liked talking to me. I was the future and maybe the age of one of his children. And, but he was a stand-in for all of them. They all were isolated. None of them fit in. There was no society. They, they couldn't leave their memories. They all He committed suicide, in fact, and a number of them did. They could never fit in. They got jobs at the AMP as clerks and groceries and... But uh, they couldn't go to American movies. They couldn't read American books. They were lost. And, uh, they were too far gone to ever. So all those memories I've kept. And when I thought I wanted for years to try to write a book about the welfare system and the poor, which I did, and I have, finally. It's being that part of the book. It, the book in the States is being recognized mostly as a book about the Holocaust or the 60s. They're leaving out a third of the book, which is about the welfare system and the poor and America's attitude toward poverty, which I guess isn't fashionable. But here and in England, it's being recognized, and the reviews are, are dealing almost directly with that, which I'm very grateful for. How did that displacement, that lots of these immigrants who came to America, how did that affect their sons and daughters? You're the son of an immigrant. How did that affect you? Were there typical scenarios that you experienced as children of immigrants who'd come from war-torn Eastern Europe to America and all the frustrations that went with that? I, I was not typical. I didn't know anybody my age. I mean, growing up, it was the mean streets of Rochester. It was a very tough neighborhood. And, you know, there were Lithuanians and Romanians and Russians and some and Jews, not many. But I, I lived down on the streets, so I had something in common with them. We lived out on the streets because the streets were a friendlier reality than the one back in the hall. A lot of the fathers drank too much, and it was rough. When I grew up, the Jewish kids I knew were second or third generation already, and none of them had my experience. And their families were more well-to-do, and I was very different from all of them. So when I grew up, I was very influenced by the generation of Jewish writers older than me. The Philip Roths, and especially Saul Bellow, and Malamud, and the poets Phil Levine. And I um, didn't really relate to a lot that was going on in my... I didn't have a lot in common with the Jewish writers I knew. I, it was the older generation because my, my experience was similar to theirs. It wasn't similar. By the time I was growing up, my experience was rare. 
And you've been publishing poetry for over 40 years. And in that poetry, you've tackled a lot of the thorny, difficult family relationships that go on between siblings and between fathers and sons. Can you tell me about your own father? Because the challenges that he faced in his life and the frustrations clearly has affected you as a a poet and a writer. Well, I'm an only child. And my father was older when he had me. He was in his 40s, and I don't think he was prepared to be a father. It was my mother's idea. He was always working. He, I, My best-known book um, that I won a Pulitzer for um, is called Failure, <laughs> ironic. And it's about his business failures. He set records in upstate New York with his many um, business failures. He failed constantly. And his final failure, which was a, a vending business, uh, he died of a heart attack, uh, broken of spirit and body. And I watched this, and he left us penniless and, in fact, in debt. There wasn't money to bury him. So when I was a teenager, I was 18 when he was um, dying, we didn't have a very good relationship. It was given to me as a task to make him stop working and go into the hospital, or he would die. So I was suddenly given the job of saving him. And that led to fights because he didn't want to stop working. And I think he wanted to die, and frankly, because I was about to graduate high school and go off to college, and he couldn't pay for anything. Most of our lives, he stayed in my grandmother's house, freeloading, because he couldn't ever put enough money together to buy us our own place. So my mother never had really her own home, except for the last two years of my father's life. So it was uh, It was a story I was waiting a long time to tell. And how does that sit with you now? You're a parent of two children. Have you forgiven your father in some way? Have you come to terms with maybe the missed opportunities, you know, his own failures as a person or in terms of his ambition, how it all stifled him in some way? Well, I think maybe the idea behind failure, that book of poems, was to forgive. And I think I, I reached it. I mean, I, I, I understand, given his own circumstance, uh, poverty and struggle, endless struggle. And the fact that he was clearly dyslexic. I grew up dyslexic without knowing it and was always put in what they was called the dummy table in school, the slow kids. Grew up thinking I was stupid. And it wasn't until my son was diagnosed with dyslexia in the second grade, and I was 58 at the time, I understood that I was dyslexic, and that explained all of that. And since I never saw my father read even a newspaper, I'm sure he was dyslexic also which would explain a lot of his behavior. So I understand it. He, he he grew up in a big hole. He was very young when he came over, and he didn't speak English, and he's worked hard. And he got by, I guess you could just say, the best way he could and uh, stayed as honest as he was able to. And kept pushing himself, clearly. To the point where he, his heart broke, yes. He worked 16-hour days. He always worked. He always strove. He left no energy over to be a husband or be a father. And that usually doesn't sit well with a son. But isn't there a great lesson in that? That what we should look towards, what we should really work on in terms of our relationships. I know you've written about this, that, you know, what is really important is not the money, it's not the status, and how ambition can thwart a lot of things in life. 
Well, I, being a father, a husband and a father are very important to me, and I think uh, my sons do not feel toward me, I do not believe, the way I felt toward my father, that they have my full support and attention, and I certainly enjoy being a father. It's the thing I've enjoyed most in my life, in fact. Can we talk about America today? It's under a lot of challenges, politically, socially. There's huge social deprivation, and politically there doesn't seem to be the will to drive positive change. How difficult is it for those on the margins, on the financial margins in America today? And how many people are falling down as a result? Well, you know, a large part of this book deals with what I find a very mysterious and incomprehensible attitude toward the poor. It's almost as if they serve a function, and the people who help create this disparity don't want to recognize it. And um, they mirror society in a way that no one's looking in the mirror. Inequality is a huge issue in the country. I think it's the largest issue, and it's very much of a political problem. And there are those who profit from and work very hard to keep the status quo who want the disparity, the inequality. They want less than 1% to control as much as 40% of the wealth because it, it suits them. They're rewarded for it. And the middle class is now, not that the middle class is being squeezed and suffered. I don't want to become too political and go into that, but people are taking notice. People that, for wedge issues like abortion or guns or whatever, would normally vote Republican are thinking twice now because of how the unions are being destroyed and all of that and how their, their livelihood. The poor are the ones who, there's more of an invasion from the middle class into poverty, the, the, the number of people living in poverty. I think it's something like three or four children out of ten or more, uh, maybe five, uh, living in poverty. What's considered poverty, not enough to get by on. What used to be a dark secret is now risen to the surface. It's no longer a dark secret. And also the issue of undocumented as well, the people coming from all over the world who aren't in the official tax system, who are working in the black economy who are being exploited. What is the hope for those thousands of people in America? Well, the main immigration issue is an Hispanic one. is people from South America and Mexico and Central America. And that is being dealt with. I mean, you know, the, the, the people of illegal status um, who should be recognized and should be made legal, of course. I think that one party in particular is struggling to have that done. And it is a problem. And I, I and most people I know care about it. But the fact that enough Hispanics, Latinos, have the vote and have become American, that they represent a strong part of the vote. So they're being recognized because they can affect the political landscape. And would you feel a responsibility as a poet, as a writer, as a teacher, and also as a father to engage in these issues and to maybe speak up for those and address it in your poetry and your writing, to speak up for those who possibly either don't have the education or the confidence or the voice or the space to actually tell their stories? Well, you know, I've, I've been working on this, you could say, this particular book since I was 25 and had that job. So certainly the heart of that issue, the inequality and the function the poor play I've been addressing and have now addressed. If you're asking, if, am I also a political activist? 
I was when I was young during the 60s. I find it hard to find time among everything else to, to write. So I don't, don't have much time for political activism. I let that to people a little younger than I am now. But it still matters, though, surely. Oh, I, people know my opinion. You don't know me for 10 minutes without knowing who I am and what I stand for. And you're getting it now. If I ever had the opportunity, I wouldn't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> Philip, I might get you to read from your award-winning book of poetry, Failure. I think you're going to read the title poem. To pay for my father's funeral, I borrowed money from people he already owed money to. One called him a nobody. No, I said, he was a failure. You can't remember a nobody's name. That's why they're called nobodies. Failures are unforgettable. The rabbi who read a stock eulogy about a man who didn't belong to or believe in anything was both a failure and a nobody. He failed to imagine the son and wife of the dead man being shamed by each word. To understand that not believing in or belonging to anything demanded a kind of faith and buoyancy. An uncle counting on his fingers my father's business failures, a parking lot that raised geese, a motel that raffled honeymoons, a bowling alley with roving mariachis, failed to love and honor his brother who showed him how to whistle under covers, steal apples with his right or left hand. Indeed, my father was comical. His watches pinched. He tripped on his pant cuffs and snored loudly in movies, where his weariness overcame him, finally. He didn't believe in savings, insurance, newspapers, vegetables, good or evil, human frailty, history, or God. Our family avoided us, fearing boils. I left town, but failed to get away. American poet, teacher and activist Philip Schultz. Philip's latest offering, The Wherewithal, a novel in verse, is published by W.W. Norton and Company and retails at about 15 euros. I have to say, it's a beautiful read. The music you're listening to in the background is the talented American neoclassical composer Goldman, and the tune is called The Nature of Daylight. It's really moody. I hope you're enjoying it. Okay, let's take a bit of a break. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, over the week, I got some very interesting emails on last week's interview with Emer McBride. Some of you had already read the book and loved it, while others found it a bit tricky to read and hard to finish. Well, whatever your opinion, and they're all valid. I think you'll agree. It's a tremendously brave book. So a big thanks to everybody who took the time to write. OK, let's now move into a very different space, to South Africa, under the system of apartheid. I'd like to set this interview up with a quote from the iconic educationalist and human rights activist Stephen Biko from The Definition of Black Consciousness. Merely by describing yourself as black, you have started on a road towards emancipation. You have committed yourself to fight against all forces that seek to use your blackness as a stamp that marks you out as a subservient being. Apartheid 1948-1994 by Saul Debau has just been published by Oxford University Press and it asks some very interesting and challenging questions. 
was the ANC the leading political force in the end of apartheid? And just what exactly was apartheid ideology? Sill's new book highlights the fact that apartheid was much more than a simple story of black oppression by whites. So lasts not only why was apartheid defeated, but refreshingly how it survived for so long. For anyone interested in this violent and disturbing chapter in South African history, I cannot but recommend this book. It's a very robust read. I particularly liked Soul's chapter entitled The Cracks Within the System, which comprehensively unpacks black consciousness ideology, which Soul describes as a mixture of theological, philosophical and new left political ideas. It's great stuff and hugely accessible to read. Sol Debau is Professor of African History at the School of History, Queen Mary, University of London. Born and brought up in Cape Town, he has published widely on the development of racial segregation and apartheid in all its aspects, political, ideological and intellectual. His books include Racial Segregation, and the origins of apartheid in 20th century South Africa, 1919 to 1939, and South Africa's struggle for human rights. Seoul finished apartheid 1948 to 1994 in his hometown of Cape Town, with Robben Island visible in the near distance. When I spoke with Seoul, I asked him about the system of apartheid and its origins. Well, there are two views on this. The one is that apartheid was no more than an elaboration of racial segregation. Racial segregation involved many of the key legislative dimensions that apartheid inherited. For example, separation of the land, uh, rules about a mixture between blacks and whites, rules about uh, allowing blacks to live in cities. Many of those laws were carried through, many of the key laws. The difference was 